do you have any quirks? Got anything peculiar or unusual that you do in a habitual way? Something you're kind of known for? Family and your friends know you for? Statistics out this week reveal that one out of every one person has a quirk. That's right. You're quirky. I'm quirky. We're all quirky. Some of you have the quirk of putting the toilet paper on the roll so that it rolls out from underneath. Now, I'm pretty sure the book of Deuteronomy says that there's something about that that you shouldn't do. Some of us have the quirk of not liking leftovers. You know, this used to really bother me, this, this quirk of not liking leftovers. But, but now I realize that just means there's more for me tomorrow night at 1130. So I'm all good with people who don't like leftovers. It's great. Some people only use blue ink. Some people will only drink a certain brand of soda at certain times of the day. Some people only take routes that don't have any left turns wherever they go. That's me. Some people sleep with one foot perfectly tucked outside of the covers. You know who you are. Some people actually wash their hands before they wash their hands. We all have all kind of quirks, right? Laura Dolce is a community leader and journalist in Maine. She says that one of her quirks is getting the groceries from the car to the house. She hates it. She hates going back and forth and all those bags, so she just doesn't do it. She says she just does it all in one trip. This is her description of taking the groceries in. So this involves looping bag after bag on my arm, sometimes 15 bags, and then attempting to, A, close the trunk, B, stagger up to and open the front door, C, close said door, D, edge sideways through the dog gate in the kitchen doorway, and E, swing the bags up onto the counter. By then, my hands are bright red, and my fingers are tingling, and I'm pretty sure my arms are at least two inches longer. But on the bright side, all the bags are in. Some of you take the groceries in like that. I know you. Oxford Dictionaries uses an example when it comes to the word quirk, a little example phrase, and that little example phrase goes like this. His distaste for travel is an endearing quirk. It also says that endearing in the Oxford Dictionary means to inspire love and to inspire affection. Now, truthfully, a lot of our quirks annoy people, right? But there is one quirk that has the ability to inspire love, to inspire affection. There is a quirk that has the ability to inspire love and affection and delight in your husband or in your wife. There's a a quirk that has the ability to inspire your kids and your grandkids to think well and to make good decisions and to ask for good things. There's a quirk that has the ability to stir our church and other churches toward deeper levels of love and good works. There's a quirk that has the ability to inspire more hope and more peace into our neighborhoods, into our community, into our government agencies, into our businesses, dare I say, even into the mall. 
Yeah, I'm not a mall guy. So if I would say that this quirk could inspire into the mall boy, this is a huge quirk. It's a quirk that inspires love and affection in such a way that really can't even be explained. What kind of quirk is that? Well, it was the quirk that defined the first church. It was what made the first church who they were. They inspired love and affection in their community, and they inspired love and affection in such a way that that same love and affection got to 801 12th Street in Casey. That's quite a quirk. So what is it? Listen to Acts chapter 2, verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Their quirk was awe. For the first time in 112 years, golf returned to the Olympic sporting routine. Matt Kuchar, American golfer, won the bronze medal. This is what he said after he won. I've never been so happy with a third place finish in my life. I can't explain to you the pride that I feel now just busting out of my chest. Now, why did Cooch feel that way? Well, he felt that way because there's a, a difference in his wins. See, it's, it's different winning a trophy on a Sunday afternoon for a golf tournament representing you and your wife and your two kids and your parents. It's very different than winning an Olympic medal representing you and, and your wife and your two kids and your parents and 321 million other people. See, there, there's just a difference there was something emotional, something stirring about that metal that was hard for him to put into words. See, the, the first church, they were busting out with something more than just national pride in a medal. See, the first church, they, they were busting out with awe, with amazement, and with reverent fear. There was, there was something going on they couldn't explain it. Their attitudes were different. Their emotions were different. Their, their feelings were different. And they knew something was going on. It was beyond them. They could not explain it, but they knew that it was real, and they knew that they didn't do it. They knew it wasn't something that they concocted. They knew as they looked at their life, it wasn't just that they had good preaching and, and worshipful music and a, and a nice place to meet and, and good programs for kids and teenagers. They knew there was something else going on. There was something other. What does that mean, something other? Well, about 2,700 years ago, there was a guy named Isaiah. And Isaiah had a moment that the best computer animator in the world cannot create or recreate. And he wrote it down for us. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. The earthly king had just died, and Isaiah was discouraged, maybe even depressed. Who's, who's going to lead now? Who, who's going to be in charge? And in that moment, God allowed Isaiah to catch a glimpse of who he really is in his glory. 
contrary to what we might hear from the intelligent commentary of, of world and cultural and social and even religious leaders, there is only one final and ultimate throne. Higher than the White House, higher than Buckingham Palace, higher than Hollywood's Walk of Fame, higher than your man cave. God, the one true God, is the only one who was and is and is to come. There is no one but him. Isaiah caught a glimpse of that. In ancient times, the the length of a royal robe lets you know how important that person was. And so Isaiah knows that something really majestic is going on in this vision because he can't even find the end of God's robe. It wasn't filling up a room, it was filling up an Olympic stadium. There was majesty, there was power. And look what he saw next, verse 2 and 3. Seraphim stood above, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So angelic creatures that we would probably run and hide from instead of putting as little porcelain figures on our bathroom counter. They were flying over the throne of God, and they were singing. And what they were singing was a song that cannot be sung about any of us. None of us can have a song sung of us that says, oh yeah, he's holy, 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 or she's holy, holy, holy. There's only one person that gets that song. And it seems that all of creation understands that, even if humanity does not. You see, from the new Christian sitting in a coffee house in Cambodia, playing his guitar and and singing songs about his new Savior, Jesus, to the 200 billion stars that are just in our galaxy, all of creation, just like these seraphim, they're shouting back and forth about the glory of God. They're not calling out to one another about me or you or Isaiah. They are calling out to one another about the glory and the majesty of God. Listen to what happens next. Verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. This has absolutely no comparison to the fun and the excitement and the shaking and the rocking and the cannon smoke that we might experience with 2001 or running down the hill. You see, every single stadium and every single arena will one day cease to be. But the throne of God has no end. His kingdom, and only His kingdom, is forever. So this smoke, this trembling, this shaking, there's nothing like it. And how did Isaiah respond? Well, Isaiah threw his hands in the air like he really did care. And he said, oh, Lord, this is such a blessing. Oh, God, there's a sweet, sweet spirit in this place. He said, yeah, God, that that rock, that was my kind of worship music. No, that's not what he said at all. Listen to verse 5. Isaiah said, woe is me. I'm ruined. 
Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When confronted with the holy presence of God, Isaiah got low. He was experiencing awe and amazement and reverent fear. And while he was down on the ground, in his lowness, his mind and his heart, they started talking to one another. And Isaiah started getting some perspective. He understood there's there's God and, and then there's me. There's holy, 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 and then, and then, and then there's me. There's other, 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 and then there's, there's me. Charles Colson was chief counsel for President Richard Nixon. He spent some time in jail for the Watergate scandal. Before he went to jail, he became a Christian. You may have heard of him through some of the books that he's wrote, written or, or maybe through his work through the prison fellowship ministry. Later in his life, he was going through a, a spiritually dry time, just feeling a little disconnected from the Lord. A friend of his told him he should listen to a series of lectures from R.C. Sproul on the holiness of God. And this is what Colson writes about his experience. All I knew about Sproul was that he was a theologian, so I wasn't enthusiastic. After all, I reasoned, theology was for people who had time to study, locked in ivory towers, far from the battlefield of human need. However, at my friend's urging, I finally agreed to watch Sproul's series. By the end of the sixth lecture, I was on my knees, deep in prayer, in awe of God's absolute holiness. It was a life-changing experience as I gained a completely new understanding of the holy God I believe in and worship. My spiritual drought ended, but this taste for the majesty of God only made me thirst for more of Him. That's what other means. That's what holy means. The first church, they didn't have seraphim. They didn't have smoke. But they were in awe of the majesty of God. They didn't know what to do with it, but they knew it was real. And they were thirsty for more. They knew there had to be more to this majesty. Do you know why we watch the Olympics? Do you know why we vacation at the beach instead of in our garage? You know why CGI movies of, of superheroes and science fiction, why those rule the box office right now? You know why people are addicted to reality and how-to TV shows? You know why we have famous celebrity preachers, some of our favorites? It's because we were created with a sense of awe. We were, we were created with a, a natural sense to want to be amazed. The early church, they, they were amazed. They, they were stunned at what they had. Here's the problem, though. Most of us, instead of being amazed, we're settling. We're settling for chocolate-covered air. 
We're settling for stuff that's not necessarily evil, but it's just like temporary cotton candy. We're settling for things like TV and social media, smartphone games. We're settling for fantasy Warcraft games, and we're settling for fantasy football. We're settling for romance novels. We're settling for the home shopping network. We're settling for extreme hiking or extreme biking or extreme hunting or extreme fishing or extreme couponing or whatever your extreme thing might be. See, we're settling for artificial awe. We're settling for, for artificial amazement. The reality is, it's like we're taking doses of, of printed and digital and audio novocaine, and we're, we're deadening our spiritually sound taste buds. And so we, we all of a sudden can't enjoy the beauty and the truth of the gospel because our spiritual taste buds are just kind of dead. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I love sports and I love entertainment and I love technology. I love how we can use technology to help people find Jesus and how we use technology to encourage one another in Jesus. But I love how you can text people and encourage them with the gospel. What an awesome thing. But the truth is, entertainment and sports and technology can also dull our senses when it comes to the gospel. It can almost distract us or prevent us from enjoying the extraordinary truth of the gospel. The first church, they didn't have the entertainment flurry that we have. Social media for them was chatting and liking and, and commenting on a conversation around a table with a plate of olives and, a, and an oil lamp. And tiny houses, well, those weren't a cultural lifestyle choice. They were the only choice. So life was a bit different, but their sense of awe was real. They knew something was happening. There was this moment that things changed for them. Their attitude was different. Their emotions were different. Their feelings were different. They were dialed in to holy, holy, holy. They were dialed in to other, other, other. And so the question is, how, how do we get dialed in? How, how do we get that? How can we get what the first church had? Well, we can't create it on our own. We can't do it on our own. We need to capture or recapture the holiness of God and the otherness of God, but we need help. We can't do that on our own. Psalm 119, verse 107 says, Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Revive means to give life. And so what we need is we need God to give life to our hearts and our minds. What kind of life? The kind of life that stays stunned and amazed with Jesus. The kind of life that stays stunned and amazed with the gospel. The kind of life that sings, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. And when you get to the part that says, drive the dark clouds of my doubt and my sin and my sadness away, that when you sing that, you go, yes, my God can do that. The first church, they were kind of getting revived every day. They were kind of getting new life every day. And why? Well, it was this one thing that they kept on doing. They, they kept remembering and enjoying this, this one thing. 
This is how the Apostle Paul put it in Galatians 2, verse 20. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, he was crushed for your sins. He bore the penalty through execution for your rebellion and your wrongdoing. And that Savior, He loved you. He gave Himself up for you. And He calls you to turn from sin and to turn to Him. He calls you to love Him and trust Him and follow Him. And He promises that those who love and trust and follow Him will have hope and peace and joy that lasts forever. But He equally promises that those who reject Him He equally confirms that those who reject him will have no peace and no hope and no joy. And that's something that lasts forever. His call has never changed, and his call is so real. We used a quote Wednesday night in our Bible study that I think kind of helps us think through what it means to, to ask God for this daily sense of of awe and revival. Times of revival are seasons in which many nominal and spiritually sleepy Christians operating out of the semi-Phariseeism of religion wake up to the wonder and the ramifications of the gospel. And then he says this about revivals. Revivals are massive eruptions of new spiritual power in the church through a recovery of the gospel. This is not a new program or something you can implement through a series of steps. It is a matter of wonder. Wonder. Something you you can't explain. And what kind of wonder are we talking about? We're talking about holy, holy, holy wonder. We're talking about other, other, other wonder. We're talking about the wonder that says he loved me and gave himself up for me. And what will happen in your life, what will happen in my life when we start to catch that kind of wonder? Well, here's what will happen. Just like Coulson, we'll start to thirst more for God. And you know what? We'll start to see God more. That's exactly what was happening in the first church. Listen to the last part of verse 43 in Acts 2. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Wonders and signs. So that means that next week, I need to start handling snakes up here, right? And the week after that, I'm going to start hitting people in the forehead up on the stage. Some of our choir members are going to be back behind them catching them. You know, we, and we're going we're to light this thing up. That's what that means, right? No, probably not. <laughs> I do think it means this, though. We need to be very careful about being stuffy with our faith or silly with our faith. We need to be somewhere in between. And by stuffy, I mean that we think the world is going to fall apart if we're not holding a bulletin in our hand on Sunday morning. And by silly, I mean standing in the produce section and calling Jesus' name out loud so that he'll help you find the ripest cantaloupe. We don't need to be stuffy and we don't need to be silly. We probably need to be somewhere in between. In other words, what we probably really need to do is to make sure that we are keeping in step with God. That we're paying attention to who God is. And one of the best ways we can do that is to to look at what his word says. 
And so here we have this, this one Bible verse. And it's really helpful as you think through Bible verses to look at the street that you find that Bible verse on. What are the other verses that live on the street with it? And you look at that verse and that house on that street, and then you look at it in terms of what it looks like in the whole neighborhood of the Bible. So Acts 2.43 is kind of on the end of the cul-de-sac of Acts chapter 2. And so what houses do we pass to get to it? Well, we pass the house of the initiation of the Holy Spirit after the resurrection. And then we pass the house of the very first Christian sermon that was ever preached. And then we pass the house of the first church that was ever gathered together. Those are some pretty significant houses, right? And so that's important because it wasn't like that these signs and wonders were just happening at any old time in history. They were happening at a significant time in history. And so what were the other houses that you'd go by before you'd get to verse 43? Well, they don't have the same punch as those first houses, but, but you'd go by the, the house of sermons preached on Jesus and the gospel and the kingdom of God. You'd go by the, the house where the, the early church was sharing life together. The early church was, was meeting together, and then the, the house of, of eating together with the early church, and then the house of, of sharing things together, and then the, the house of praying together, the house of remembering Jesus together. And then you get past all of those houses, and then here you are at verse 43. So there's a lot going on and a lot leading up to, but those houses right before, they're kind of ordinary. You see, there, there was no magical prayer cloths. There was no fancy oil. There wasn't a, a big, huge, gigantic coliseum. There was no stirring music. There were not images of Jesus in the flatbread. There wasn't a a cool preacher with fancy hair and a fancy suit preaching. There wasn't a, a cool tattooed preacher with skinny jeans. What we find is an extraordinary God working through ordinary ways in ordinary See, the the first church, it was simple, it was uncluttered, and it was ordinary. And in that ordinary environment, that's where God was doing signs and wonders. And why was he doing those things? Really for three primary reasons. God was performing signs and wonders to affirm his sovereignty, to affirm his majesty, to affirm his, his justice and his love. He was also performing signs and wonders so that these new believers would be affirmed, so that they would know that taking up their cross and follow Jesus was not a dumb thing. It was the right thing. And God was doing signs and wonders to attract people who were lost. You see, the the new believers, these new Christians, they were seeing God do these amazing things. And they were saying, yes, that's that's our God. That's our God. I love how singer-songwriter Matt Marr puts it in a song that I was listening to this week. The sinner that's inside of me has lost all his control of me. My God, from the flood and from the fire, you brought me out. I am alive. With a faith just like a child, I'm not afraid. I'm running wild. For everything that will be done, I am yours and you are my deliverer. See, the people in the first church, they saw these signs and wonders. They said, yes, that's our God. He's our deliverer. But what about the people that didn't go to church? What about those people who weren't following after Jesus? What was happening with them? 
Well, they were looking at these Christians. They were looking at these people that went to church together. And they watched them. They loved each other. And, and, they, and they shared together. They looked out for one another. They went out of their way for one another. They genuinely cared for one another. And they prayed together. And they made sure that they shared the gospel of Jesus with other people. And those people outside kept going, who are these people? What does Casey West Columbia say about us? I'd love to know more. I hear some. It's all good, too. <laughs> Just encouraging. But it had a great thing that lost people. What is it with those people? God was trying to draw them to the gospel through his people. So do we need signs and wonders today? Yeah, we do. We really do. Look, there's a lot of faith, there's a lot of family, there's a lot of friends, there's a lot of freedom, there's a lot of fun in the world that we live in. But you know what? In our world, there's also a lot of disease and there's a lot of death. And there's a lot of trials and troubles and tragedies and tribulations. And there's a lot of discouragement and depression. And there's a lot of fear. So yeah, we need some signs and wonders. So how do we do that? What does that look like? How now shall we be living? Well, there's probably a hundred ways, especially if we read through Paul's letters to the churches, to, to tell each other how we can be living in such a way that God might perform signs and wonders through us. Let me just give you a weird one. Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. I'm reading from the Amplified Version here. Do all things without grumbling and fault-finding and complaining against God and questioning and doubting among yourselves. <laughs> God could do a wonder through our lives if we acted like that today, right? Verse 15, why do we do that? So that you may show yourselves to be children of God in the midst of a crooked and wicked generation, spiritually perverted and perverse. And then what would we look like in that world? Last part of verse 15. Among whom you are seen as bright lights, beacons shining out clearly in the dark world. Beacons in a dark world. So what does that look like in real life? Well, it looks a little bit like this. Monday night, my Uncle Thomas died. I found a brain tumor on Friday, and by Monday, uh, he was gone. He was 68 years old. He has always been fascinating to me because he just is such a go-getter. He has so much energy, more energy than anybody I've ever known. Great family man, great servant, great businessman. In fact, the second night that he was in the hospital, which I'm pretty sure is the only time he's ever been in the hospital in his life, he told my Aunt Judy, you've got to get me out of here. There's nothing for me to do. He was wanting to do something. He was a doer. At his funeral this Friday, my brother-in-law, Richard, he said something in, in the message that he was preaching, and it, it grabbed me immediately. I don't know if anybody else got it, but I know I smiled. And it grabbed my heart in a way that, that just keeps lingering. He was talking about King David in Psalm 23. 
King David in Psalm 23 is, is writing of God being our good, good, good shepherd. And Richard read Psalm 23, verse 5. You have anointed my head with oil. And then he said this. While the doctors were attaching many medical devices to Tom's head to search for and save his physical life, God himself was gently pouring the oil of eternal life all over his head as he was bringing another sheep home to the green pasture of heaven. That is quirky. In our day and age, to look at pain and look at sadness, to look at frustration and confusion and hurt and to see all wonder. That's quirky. The first church, man, they were quirky just like that. The first church, they spent their days inspiring love and affection into each other and into their community because they simply just could not get over being stunned and amazed with the Nazarene Jesus, the saving, delivering, rescuing Son of God, stunned and amazed and in awe and wonder of Jesus. May God help our church be quirky like that.